Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, May 25th, 2021. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Uh, so uh, if you look at the numbers today, the this morning, on uh, relating to the pandemic, there are various numbers all over the place, and they don't agree, which is weird, right? So uh, there is a – Johns Hopkins has a COVID tracker. The New York Times has a COVID tracker. Uh, Abe, you, you your COVID tracker is called Worldometer. Is that right, the one that you're using? That's right. That's the one that I've just gotten in the habit of using. Okay. So uh, I uh, – texted you guys last night to say that as of 10 p.m., I think it was 10 p.m. last night, uh, the Johns Hopkins COVID tracker case number on, on, on of yesterday, meaning the 24th of May, was 12,800 cases. Uh, and I then texted you and said, the pandemic is over. Why do I, why do I say the pandemic is over? According to Anthony Fauci several months ago, he would deem he would say the pandemic was over when we reached ten thousand cases or fewer a day. Twelve to thirteen thousand is effectively ten thousand, and the trajectory is obviously heading downward south very fast. So if if it's not technically over now, it'll be over in two weeks. Uh, some of these other numbers are different, right? There's a nineteen thousand number on. Abe's Worldometer. The New York Times seems to have a number in the mid-20s, but it's very hard to tell what they are measuring, whether they're doing a 14-day average. Uh, I literally was just counting yesterday's cases, not not the 14-day average, which even in the New York Times' case with these, you know, 27,000 cases is down 37%, right? Uh, the 14-day change, 37%. New deaths, according to the uh, according to the New York Times, 416, a decline of 13%. So, um, plus, Moderna, Moderna now reports that its vaccine is effective for 12 to 15-year-olds. Um, we're getting anecdotal cases of the vaccine's uh, viability for people under the age of 12, for kids under the age of 12. Um, uh, so when, when I, I, we're done, uh, the other thing, by the way, is that, uh, a- after all the, uh, panic about, uh, India and Brazil, their caseloads are half what they were a month ago. So, uh, so the, the horror of the Indian variant and all of that seems to be, uh, limited, but of course you do have this bizarre lag, uh, bureaucratic lag where, on the one hand, this is what's happening. And on the other, the State Department is issuing guidance to Americans that they should not attend the Olympics in Tokyo this summer uh, because the vaccination rate in Japan is very low. Well, that's interesting because, of course, the vaccination rate in Japan is very low. What what it, What is Japan? Anyone want to tell me what Japan is? It's an it's island, an island. <laughs> or, it's a, or it's an archipelago of islands. It's islands. And basically was closed off from the world for a year. Uh, and there was no corona there. <clears throat> so, yeah. Th- so, you know, 
that's insane. But I mean, that's where we get the federal government, you know, not speaking with one voice, some some idiot bureaucrat in the State Department's health advisory department issuing a blanket statement that people should not go to Japan for the for the Summer Olympics, that it's not safe. Uh, and of course, we still have the CDC either refusing or not yet having changed its guidance on summer camping, which remains that children and staffers, including vaccinated staffers, should all remain fully masked indoors and outdoors, except when they're in water or doing extreme exercise. Can I say, though, I just yes. talked to a camp, a summer camp director yesterday. They're definitely taking it as guidance, not dictate. Uh, which is a very good thing. I think a lot, if you're, especially for the older teens who are, are going to be fully vaccinated this summer, there's, uh, and the staff is all vaccinated. The message I was getting was, yeah, we're not, that's, that's all nice. That's, that's all well and good. That's totally ridiculous. Okay. Well, that's, as long that, as that's there are nice no municipal your... regulations associated right. with it. Right. So <laughs> the update from my illustrious state yesterday, over the weekend, there were multiple that's reports. Okay. Multiple reports saying that the governor uh, of my state, who was one of the few holdouts to to cling to the indoor mask mandate in defiance of CDC guidance, um, over the weekend it was reported that he was he was getting a lot of pressure from uh, groups that are not his constituency groups, uh, the unions that he has been so supportive of, and that he's been retweeting their horror over the over the rescinding of the indoor mask mandate. He said it couldn't hold out much longer. And uh, he was probably going to going to move this week. So yesterday he held a press conference, said we've always been guided by the science and we're very proud of that. And we are proud to announce now that the science suggests that we can lift the indoor mask mandate for Memorial Day weekend. The science has aligned with Memorial Day weekend. It's practically love when that happens. <laughs> it is providence. God's finger on the state of New Jersey has has given us our summer back. Uh, listen, so Christine, I'm really happy that you spoke to a nice, my guess is Goyesha summer camp director who is uh, just going to follow the guidance. Uh, we we people who send our kids to Jewish summer camp uh, are are being informed that we need to send them with 15 masks and they're going to be in pods and that siblings aren't siblings who are at the same camp are not going to be able to associate with each other if they're not in the same pods now. My, our, my kids' camp is, I think it's like three, three and a half weeks, maybe four weeks away. So there is plenty of time for this to change. But it hasn't changed yet. And and it's been, what, two weeks? And I'm going to re- recite these numbers again because I know that there are people who are in the uh, who are in the administrative leadership of the summer camp that my kids go to who listen to this podcast. So I'm going to repeat what I have to say right now. The number of deaths of Americans from COVID between the ages of birth and 18 is 277. That is from January of 20 to May of 2021. The the possibility of people under the age of 18, particularly if people now over the ages of 12, can be vaccinated by the time they come to camp, the possibility that any of them will get COVID is unbelievably vanishingly low. Uh, Kids get sick at camp. Kids always get sick at camp. That's why there's an infirmary. That's why there's this. That's why there's that. It is time for you, people at my summer camp and people at every summer camp, to take it as guidance and lift these restrictions. 
I know you are hearing me. I know this because I get emails from you guys, and some of you are in leadership, and it is time to do this because you're all mashuga and you're being crazy people. And you know why? Because you're listening to idiot parents who don't read the articles and are all hysterical and are the same kinds of people who say things like, you can't have that food in in our you know in the uh, in the dining hall because you know what about kids who can't control themselves when there's ice cream? Can I can I commend to the to the holdout anxious parents and in general the anxious Americans a really wonderful commencement address that was just given by uh, Mitch Daniels at Purdue University, uh, in which he talks very explicitly and I think in a really perfectly distilled way about the fundamental, uh, what he calls how many of your elders failed a fundamental test of leadership when he talks about their unwillingness to take, uh, you know, responsible risk to consider evidence. Uh, the great line was that, you know, uh, sometimes they let what might be termed the mad pursuit of zero, in this case, zero risk of anyone contracting a virus, block out other competing concerns like the protection of mental health, the educational needs of children, or the survival of businesses. Pursuing one goal to the utter exclusion of all others is not to make a choice, but to run from it. It's not leadership, it's abdication. I feel confident, and he says, you know, he, he hopes that the education they've received at Purdue will, will prevent that in their future leadership roles. But it's a wonderful distillation of a kind of reckoning we should start really having about, about how we handled COVID, because if we're going to be able to go forward without all this anxiety and irrationality and, and quite frankly, blatant power moves and political decision making, we have to talk about what we did wrong. And it's a I, I recommend it's online. You can look it up. Mitch Daniels at Purdue University commencement address. It gets to just what John is saying. Be leaders. Start do your job as adults. <laughs> can I I want to bring something up that's uh, more uh, general and f- philosophical. Um, and I, I, I regret that I don't remember where I saw this or whose point this was. But uh, you may have seen that on Sunday, the New York Times did a big piece about the uh, about the birth, the collapse in uh, uh, natality and, and birth rates, not only in the United States but across the globe over the last hundred years, and 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 what this means. It's you know without precedent, obviously, um, and uh, and uh, what the larger philosophical meaning of it is. And somebody, and I bet someone knows who this is, and. I apologize for not citing it. Somebody said uh, that a society that skews old is a society that becomes consumed with risk and the avoidance of risk, because that is what age does. As you get older, you get more prudent, you get more careful, uh, you you live longer, the more risk-averse you are, let's say, or the more careful you are with yourself. You know, you don't drive 100 miles an hour, you don't, you know, you don't drink to destroy your liver. You probably quit smoking. There's all kinds of things you do as you get older to to mitigate the risk of of life. Some of what I'm talking about here is recklessness or heedlessness or self destructiveness. But however you want to slice it, uh, elimination of risk, you know, setting up a nest egg, making sure you can have enough money to live on, all of that, long term thinking to mitigate the downside of the rest of your life. A society that is aimed at the young is a society that is obsessed with opportunity and 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 growth and all of that because that is what youth is about. Youth is uh, you know youth is um, uh, about possibilities and and the kinds of possibilities that anyone 
uh, might want to enjoy in the future to expand possibilities, to grow possibilities, to all, to do all of that. And a society that has turned from being a society of the young, and by which I don't mean culturally, I don't mean like that it is obsessed with figuring out how to sell, you know, sneakers with blood in them to 15 year olds. I mean, a society that is, that is directed toward the future is a society in which, um, Taking risks is deemed a good, not a bad, in which taking risks is deemed a necessary part of uh, the expansion of the future. You know, it's like it's like go buy an acre of land somewhere where there's no development and be part and no, you don't just own it. You are part of its future. You are part of making sure that that acre of land somewhere in an undeveloped place becomes a developed place over time and that you are not only somebody who will benefit from that, but you will be one of the people who is responsible for its growth. Um, And you see this in dynamic societies uh, throughout history all over the world. And you see it, not to get ahead of ourselves, in a country like Israel, which has the highest birth rate. Uh, in the Western world, and is a is a is a country awash, awash in possibility, risk taking, and you know, and 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 optimism about about its economic future and what it needs to do to become, uh, you know, a prosperous, wealthy, and enduring country. So, uh, Abe, uh, it's just funny. I, I think I, I think it's an excellent point. I'm also thinking though that it's it's interesting because there's kind of a paradox here. I mean, this is getting a little bit off the topic, sort of. But um, while it's it's true that um, you know, based on birth rates, we're 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 becoming an older society. At the same time, we're stuck in this kind of arrested development um, problem in the U.S., where um, there's a sort of lack of adulthood, um, and there's people you know living with their parents until much later ages and not taking on full-time jobs and full-time responsibilities and sort of living as kids at the same time that we're actually um, getting older. I'm not, it's, it just occurred to me, I'm I'm not sure how that plays out, but I suspect it's got to be a sort of, you know, worst of both worlds um, kind of scenario. But that, that plays into this also because a society uh, again, that sort of looks to the future and growth and possibility and all of that, uh, uh, is careful about imposing measures that make the sorts of dynamic choices that young people could make. It, it encourages them rather than discourages them. It doesn't. It doesn't lay regulatory burdens on you know somebody just starting out who's starting a freelance career or wants to start a small business. It doesn't. You know, it doesn't start imposing mandates on them, and and it. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, one one way of looking at this is as life expectancy lengthens, maybe it's just a, a, a an absolute corollary that childhood lengthens somehow. You know, you know what I mean. I mean, it's like you got to get ready living mm-hmm. or get busy. You know, get busy living or get ready to die if the if your life expectancy is fifty or sixty. Because you know you get you're still living in your parents' house when you're 25, and close to half your life may already be over. Like you want to get out, you you have to get things done before it's gone. But if you can sort of reasonably expect not being a fentanyl addict that you're going to live till you know 85 or 90, maybe maybe the necessity of becoming one of those people is you know lessens. Yeah, but the argument there's another part of this too, though, which is that. 
uh, the argument of, of certainly of the progressive left and actually of more of the Democratic Party now than it used to be the case is that the state should fulfill some of that supportive parent type role, right? We should, it should forgive student debt. It should provide a universal basic income or enough of a kind of safety. We're, we're well past the safety net. It really is kind of like the state providing a hand that you can hold all along the way until you get to the point where you're finally a, a, a taxpayer who's, you know, contributing back rather than, you know, taking from. I I feel like the uh, it's not just that you, you have a whole group of young people who have a kind of prolonged adolescence or arrested development, as, as Abe said, but that they their expectations for what kind of social support they deserve as a right have become very transformed and and, and intensified in part by the past you know this this pandemic uh, period of time, and that concerns me not just for the reasons you say, John, but for just our ability as a society to kind of snap out of that and go back to a more energetic, uh, optimistic. Uh, vigorous way of approaching uh, the next generation. Because right now, I mean, there, I was reading some of these, you know, whether it's about race or about the pandemic. I mean, it's it's quite tragic to read some young people's views of their own country and of their own future, because it's incredibly, they seem unable to see an optimistic future for themselves. Well, that's sort of a holistic view of this theory that, that actually begins to make a little bit more sense. Uh, <clears throat> because prior to the pandemic, you know, the cliche was that we have to bubble wrap society for the sake of the children. So it was always, you know, every time we did some excessive measures, some excessive risk mitigation strategy, it was always for the children. And the pandemic exposed that it was never for the children, that it was always for the adults. And progressive parenting, you know, the sort of the phenomenon of progressive parenting in the late 1960s, early 1970s, which emphasized uh, drawing out children's innate potential, limiting the uh, co- the capacity to engage in in uh, conflict with your children, limiting discipline. Um, that's emphasizing affection. That sort of uh, progressive theory began to fall by the wayside in the late two thousands, early twenty tens, to be replaced with something uh, much more aggressive. Not just the kind of overarching. Uh, safety net that you're talking about, Christine, but uh, individual interventions and individual parenting lives, the, the amount, for example, of, uh, of time that children spend in 30 days of uh, child protective services, for example, being removed from families for 30 days only to be returned to those families is the intervention of the state into the, into the sphere of parenting and pr- prompted this sort of revolution on the part of people like Lenore Skenazy with her, you know, uh, free range kids movement. Um, but that ideology eventually won, won out. But when you think of it from this perspective, the decline of progressive parenting wasn't, you know, the, the attempt to really safeguard children, but to remove an obligation from parents, or rather at least the parents who felt themselves obliged to intervene in families that were not sufficiently uh, parental. Well, that's a, look, this is a endlessly fascinating topic because I would say that the shift from the uh, notion that um, uh, children are independent actors, there was a whole series of civil libertarian measures relating to children in the 1960s and 1970s, free speech rights uh, for for children. Uh, Cases went all the way to the Supreme Court about student newspapers, uh, what, what could and couldn't be done. It was the general proposition of American society that people who were not yet you know, fully citizens and had not attained their majority, did not have rights in the same way that adults have rights. And then the bias shifted to the notion that essentially children are sort of like little adults. 
They are they are uh, independent actors. They have independent rights, uh, and they and they need to be treated as kind of independent entities. And the more left you got, uh, the more um, interesting this got in terms of the counterculture's child rearing style uh, in the '60s and '70s, which was uh, open neglect. It was uh, you know sort of like the um, famous. Uh, uh, schooling project, uh, the 15th Street School in New York City, uh, where there were no classes and no teachers and just children running through the building all day. It was called Sand Hill, or I can't, can't quite remember the name. Uh, parenting on communes, uh, which was basically neglect and all of this. And there was an enormous snapback. And the snapback came, as snapbacks often do, in a manner close to psychosis. And it was the notion that child care facilities for toddlers and very young children were actually secretly satanic churches in which children were being ritually abused in the basement by, by men dressed up as clowns, which was there was a significant prosecution in New York, in the McMartin preschool case in Los Angeles relating to this. Uh, 250 charge indictment of this family that was accused of things that you look back and it was frankly, I, I mean, psychotic. It was, there were, there were prosecutors who were drawing three and four year olds out, telling them that a clown had abused them. So the three or 34 year old said the clown had abused me. The whole point here is that the, the general atmosphere of, parental and societal neglect of children in the 60s and 70s then turned into a safety regime beginning in the 1980s that began on in the most extreme and crazy way and then kind of settled into a general, you can't let children outside. It's not safe. Everywhere they turn, they could be killed. And this, what was interesting about this is that attitude persisted and grew as everything in the United States became vastly safer, everything became safer. You know, their crime rate dropped. Uh, you know, safety procedures in cars, car seat, everything. Childhood became very safe in the United States. Kids were being taught and their parents were being taught to live as though they were at risk and under siege at every turn. But this is also in keeping with our sort of aging society. And um, because, uh, you know, um, Adults are having kids, the adults that have kids in the U.S. are having them at later ages. Um, so in parenting, in some sense, their attitudes are more like grandparents than 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 parents, you know. Uh, so it's like, you know, covering every edge of every table and not letting them out. And not it is it is exactly the kind of, you know, risk mitigation obsession that you would see in older adults as opposed to sort of, you know, like young parents. I mean that's also a very good that's a very good point. I, I'm an I'm an older parent myself. I had my first uh, my first child. We had our first child when I was 43, and um, I would have been vastly more feckless if I'd had children at at, at 23. And arguably, uh, I would have been a more rational parent. Like you know, uh, because yeah, because I can see dangers. <laughs> invisible dangers that I simply would not have perceived when I was, if I were 20 years younger. 
I have a lot of friends uh, who had got married, had kids right out of high school from the community that we grew up in. That was pretty common um, who are now grandparents themselves. And it's really, it's, it's interesting to see as young parents, they were both incredibly clueless, but also really liberated from a lot of the uh, anxiety and guilt that I think older parents take on for themselves, but trying to over-educate themselves. They just kind of made it work and they made it work without a lot of money and without a lot of advice. And they just kind of did what they could do best. And their kids are great. They've grown up, they've raised wonderful kids uh, with probably a lot less anxiety than some of us are raising our kids. So it is the generational, the age matters. Right. So is in in essence maybe the the pandemic is the pluperfect example of everything we're talking about here because granted we didn't really know this was the case really until the summer like fully that essentially kids were not at risk from covid we didn't really we knew we knew that the old unlike most pandemics and most infectious disease problems that the old were disproportionately affected, that they were the ones who were going to emergency rooms and they were the ones who were dying at a horrifying clip. Ordinarily, you think of you know famous contagions and they hit the young first because kids have immature uh, immune systems, right? So, you know, polio. I mean, any, anything you want to think of uh, was, was a terror to people because it hit kids, uh, the most vulnerable among us, earliest and this was a weird shift so it took there was a you you had to sort of get into the mindset that this that the statistics were telling you this thing about can't about you know kids and their lives um and yet nothing changed uh because uh we we were still in the notion that we didn't really understand how the contagion worked was it going to come back maybe it would get worse maybe there would be variants that would make it worse and maybe kids were carrying it without getting sick themselves so that they were like little virus bombs and there uh, were scares you know that that may, meant to keep us petrified that kids maybe were going to get it or still right. getting it you know there was the sort of related syndrome um yeah. which in, in which has seemingly disappeared from the media Right. Um, where, where kids, they didn't have COVID symptoms. They had these other terrible symptoms right. um, that, that's, that perhaps were linked to COVID. And then there were these, you know, these uh, the, the, only recently, only like, you know, two, three months ago, there was this idea that suddenly kids are, are getting them in, in new huge numbers. That also never happened. Right. But I mean, you said that we were made to think this. And I, I, again, I think there was a point at which that was done in, in innocence, prudence, and out of a healthy fear and then it shifted into an unhealthy fear. And then it shifted into what Noah was talking about, where it was clear that children were being used as a cudgel for a different set of agendas, largely an agenda about resetting the table in terms of work requirements and obligations and responsibilities, particularly in schools, uh, right? So that the people who are paid in the United States largely by public you know, by, by taxes uh, or exclusively by taxes to take care of the youth of the country wanted to create a circumstance in which their employment was conditional on their own choice or the way they worked was a matter of their own choice. And you can see, by the way, uh, in some developments over the last week or week and a half, not just Randy Weingarten, the head of the 
the AFT's behavior. But uh, Bill de Blasio announcing that there would be no remote option for public schools in the fall in New York City. They, they would literally remove – everybody was saying, well, this is going to change everything. No one's ever going to have a sick day anymore because no one's ever – because you can stay home and then you'll be able to zoom in and do school anyway. That is not happening. Well, and, they have eliminated snow days. Right, well, no, but they're going to bring them back because the elimination of snow days – what I've seen. The elimination of on snow – calendar. No, the eliminate – yeah, it's, this can all change. The elimination of snow days is based on the proposition that you can teach remotely. They are going to remove the po- the option. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To no, remote. full time. There's a big difference here, John. Full time remote options are not available in New York City or in my state of New Jersey, but not part time. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Anyway, I think that you know you have this you have this phenomenon where it be yeah children became a useful uh, tool. And by the way, before we go on, before we move on to other stuff, I need to commend to you guys. Uh, a piece by Aaron Sabarium in the Washington Free Beacon this morning called The Child Soldiers of the Left or something, uh, which is an absolutely extraordinary story about a group of students in New York City um, who are being used and manipulated by the city's Department of Education and by the unions to go around lobbying and protesting and kind of trying to um, intimidate parents by being like 10,000 Greta Thunbergs complaining when parents save Asian kids uh, are demanding that the uh, test for uh, the eight selective high schools remain in place. Mysteriously, these kids show up uh, at a hearing and start shouting people down and taking their names down and doing all of this in order. And they're basically just cat's paws. They're cat's paws of the teachers unions and of leftist advocates uh, who are who are using them as human shields? Um, it's an amazing piece of work. You should read it, Aaron Sabarium at the Washington Free Beacon. Uh, so I want to tell you guys about uh, a great and signal podcast experience you should you should be having. Dan Senor's post Corona, which I've been telling you about, the podcast that attempts to uh, explain what life is like and what life will be like when we are through with the pandemic um dan has a this week's is a a highly original way to address this matter he spends an hour with uh uh, daniel gordas uh who uh, helps run a shalem college in israel uh, american rabbi who moved to israel several uh, decades ago uh writer thinker um academic uh and uh, on this podcast, uh, he they go they spend an hour going through the history of the relations and uh, problems and all of that between um, Israel and the Gaza Strip. And why this is a post-corona matter is uh, on a previous podcast dealing with uh, Israel's remarkable emergence from the pandemic and wild success with its vaccination campaign. Uh, someone on that podcast said, you'll know that we are post-corona when we start dealing with the kinds of traditional issues that we've always dealt with and aren't just dealing with this. And that, of course, is exactly what happened with uh, Gaza firing off those 750 rockets the first day of the hostilities with Israel. Uh, Danny Gordas is a, a very um, interesting, thoughtful, uh, funny, and um, and clever guy. So is Dan 
And uh, if you people have been saying to me, where can I get a one-stop shopping history of this immensely complex question of Israel and Gaza, and this podcast is the one post-corona, go to uh, you know Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. If you haven't subscribed already, do so. Listen to this. You will be illuminated. You will be educated. And you will end the hour a wiser and saner and more rational person than you were <laughs> before you start <laughs> listening to it. So that's Post Corona with Dan Senor and, and Danny Gordis. Uh, and we thank uh, Post Corona for sponsoring the Commentary Magazine podcast. Um, so speaking of Israel and Gaza, uh, we uh, uh, we talked about this yesterday, but um, really it does seem like a memo went out uh, to kind of stop uh, stop hammering on the uh, stop uh, going openly anti-Semitic. Uh, that maybe things had gone too far, and it was time to pull back on the open anti-Semitism, such such that you have um, you have the activist moron actor uh, Mark Ruffalo, uh, who you know is the sort of person who thinks that because he you know reads other people's lines, he has a brain uh, and loves to talk about the nuclear energy and you know uh, pipelines and things that you know with his second grade education he knows nothing about and he also now described what israel was happening between israel and hamas as genocide and out of nowhere yesterday ruffalo apologized for using the word genocide he said it was too extreme and he really uh, thought that you know that we need to be more understanding and really have a more thorough view of the situation and so he apologized this was uh, the most surprising development uh, in an otherwise extraordinarily depressing uh, week of um, of uh, open calumnies, uh, slanders, deceits, and uh, moral idiocies relating to Israel's reaction to having thousands of rockets fired at its cities. I want to submit two examples for the for the record, uh, particularly artless examples <clears throat> of how the memo is being. Um, produced in American political culture. The first, a New York Times op-ed from Michelle Goldberg, entitled, she didn't write the title, Attacks on Jews over Israel are a gift to the right. Um, which she And she makes a case, which justifies the title, that the cause of anti-Zionism is undermined by anti-Semitic violence. Imagine that. She writes, quote, those who terrorize Jews out of a rage at Israel seem to make their point for them, which is sort of the historic justification for Zionism that appears to elude her. Um, the second, slightly more egregious, comes to us from uh, Politico Nightly, the author of which is Elena Shore, who covers Congress at Politico, which makes a positively craven, brazen case that Democrats are far more judicious in how they manage their more controversial members. It makes the case that because Joe Biden obliquely alluded to the fact that his progressive left's criticism of Israel can verge into anti-Semitism, and one member, Dean Phillips of Minnesota, after a prolonged silence, also said that it's time for progressives to start condemning anti-Semitism. He said, I'm going to say the quiet part out loud. Their silence has been deafening, albeit choosing not to name any names. 
it's a welcome diversion from the kind of behavior that we've been witnessing over the course of the last several weeks. However, the premise of this piece only exists as a result of the Democratic Party's effort to avoid criticizing its its most um, controversial members. We know exactly who we're talking about, Rashid Tlaib, Ilan Omar, AOC, Cori Bush, um, makes a couple others now because the, the cast is growing. They're good for a couple anti-Semitic controversies a year, a few. Um, because they have faced no consequences as a result of their actions. The consequences that they're facing now are probably as harsh as they have ever been. They were offered the opportunity to condemn anti-Semitism explicitly in 2019 when um, uh, Ilan Omar made her uh, yet another round of anti-Semitic comments and couldn't do it and chose instead to just generically condemn hate as a, as a broad condition which who would not? I mean, I struggle to think of anybody who would reject the condemnation of hate. Um, but it was just their it's their cravenness that has led them to this point. And to say that they are somehow more more uh, more aggressive in policing their own. I mean, take Steve King out of it. The only no, 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 the but, very existence right. of of uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is herself an ambulatory psychotic, um, exists only to to justify this premise. Without her, they wouldn't have it. But you, ha- you haven't introduced that part, which is the, the headline of Alana Shore's piece is the difference between Ilhan Omar and MTG, Marjorie Taylor Greene. So what Marjorie Taylor Greene has done, and Marjorie Taylor Greene is a despicable piece of human awful, and we can get into that in a minute. But what Marjorie Taylor Greene has done is to liken uh, mask mandates to the Holocaust, Right. So uh, that is disgusting, but whatever it is, it it plays no role whatsoever in the question of what's going on this week in Israel and with Gaza. And she's also right? already been disciplined by her party, right? She she's stripped of her committees. I mean, she's she's powerless in terms well, of. She her- was disciplined by. The Democrats. By, by the Democrats, not oh, by, not by yeah. her own party. Steve King is and the better example, who was, yeah. who was after a very prolonged period of making uh, insensitive and racist comments, was eventually stripped of his committees and primaried successfully and removed from Congress. Right. That's however, the however. And there however, is no parallel right. on the Democratic Party side. Right. However, yeah. I think the central thing that uh, – really the central point here is that Marjorie Taylor Greene – has an equally disgusting tweet today in which she says that um, a vaccine passport is like when Jews got gold stars during the Holocaust. First of all, they're not gold stars, you idiot. Gold stars are what you get when you do well on a test and you're six years old, which is the last time she probably ever did well on a test. Um, They were yellow stars. uh, And uh, yeah, so that's really great and you're a moron and you are leading people into moron hell and anti-vax you know the fact that we are back in like 1957 with the with the john birch society worrying about putting fluoride in the water and the way people are talking about this uh about the vaccinations that are ending the pandemic um you know it it it's just beyond belief and sickening, but whatever it is, it is not, has no bearing on this whatsoever, well, which is about how people talk about Jews to living today and Israel and, and terrorism against Israel and, 
acts of anti-Semitic violence on the streets of the cities of the United so, States. It's, it's important to note that there have been very few Democratic leaders, and I will say Joe Biden was one of them, so we'll give him credit for, for making a statement that was unequivocal in its condemnation of anti-Semitism. But for all of these squad members, the, the memo that went out was, well, you can if you condemn anti-Semitism, make sure you also condemn rising Islamophobia. So they all did it. They all, Joaquin Castro did it, Ayanna Presley, you know, uh, Elon Omar, of course, cannot bring herself to write the word anti-Semitism. So she didn't say that. But this idea that we're going to equate what's going on and how Jews are being treated and hunted down and beaten in the streets as equivalent to Islamophobia, which, by the way, is not rising and for which there have been no, you know, there's been no immediately recent spike in activity and which has always been far, far less a, uh, a damaging hate crime, according to the FBI statistics, than anti-Semitism. It, it's ridiculous. They cannot bring themselves to unequivocally say this form of hate is wrong. That I tells would, you everything like you need to know about the party. I want to read to you an email that went out from the chancellor of the University of California at Berkeley, uh, whose name is Carol T. Christ. And uh, an ill-named person, I believe, based on what this email says. Um, Dear campus community, there has been a disturbing increase in hateful speech and expression in recent days on social media platforms and in public spaces across our country where recent attacks have been directed at members of the Muslim and Jewish communities. Oh, really? Uh, can you point to me, Carol T. Christ, Chancellor of the University of California, Berkeley, an attack on the Muslim community over the last in recent uh, recently uh, the university's administration condemns anti-semitism comma islamophobia comma and other forms of prejudice and bias on this campus and beyond um according to the anti-defamation league the number of physical attacks on jews in the united states over the last 10 days has risen by 63 percent 63 percent the effort to only be you, that you are only able to talk about one without talking about the other when there has been no increase in attacks on Muslims in the United States is sickening and disgusting. And that's what, that's what uh, 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 Christine is alluding to, this notion that it is somehow offensive to, to anyone to say, you know what, stop attacking Jews because that's just too limited. It's too particular. <clears throat> And, you know, we really need to do both attack, complain about real attacks on Jews and non-existent attacks on Muslims. Part of this is an effort to erroneously frame what's happening in Israel and Gaza as the Hatfields and McCoys. You see, it's, it's, two, it's just two groups, mutual hatred that goes so far back and it's just they hate each other so much and that they don't even remember why and blah, blah, blah. And it's which is not at all what's happening. Israel would want nothing more than to make peace with its neighbors. Palestinian leadership wants nothing more than to wipe Israel off, off the earth. That well, is what's I, happening. And I think what, what's interesting too is how they're framing, when, when you ask for examples of Islamophobia, the example you're often given is people criticizing Elon Omar because she was making statements that were obliquely supportive of Gaza's rockets while mentioning nothing, you know, attacking Israel for, for responding defensively to terrorist attacks. They're like, that's Islamophobia. You're attacking her because she's Muslim. No, we're attacking her because she's running cover for a terrorist organization that's trying to kill civilians. I mean, it's that's not Islamophobia. <sighs> All right. Well, guys, can I just ask you, 
Are you still going to the post office? Still paying full price for postage? Well, thanks to Stamps.com, you don't have to anymore. Mail and ship anytime, anywhere, right from your computer. Send letters, ship packages, and pay less, a lot less, with discounted rates from USPS, UPS, and more. Stamps.com saves businesses thousands of hours and tons of money every year by bringing the services of the U.S. Postal Office Service and UPS right to your computer. It's a must-have for any business, whether you're a small office sending invoices, a side hustle Etsy shop shipping out orders, or just navigating the hybrid work life. Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. No wonder over 1 million businesses choose Stamps.com for their mailing and shipping. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. Once your mail is ready, just schedule a pickup or drop it off. It's that simple. With Stamps.com, you get discounts up to 40% off post office rates and up to 66% off UPS shipping rates. Not to mention Stamps.com is a fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters. Stamps.com is a no-brainer, saving you time and money. It's no wonder nearly 1 million small businesses already use Stamps.com, so stop wasting time going to the post office and go to stamps.com instead. There's no risk. And with my promo code commentary, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in commentary. That's stamps.com, promo code commentary. Stamps.com, never go to the post office again. Uh, Well, today marks the uh, one-year uh anniversary anniversary is not the right word i don't know a year has passed since uh, george floyd was killed on the streets of minneapolis uh president will be hosting the floyd family in the white house today and we of course have uh 10 million op-eds and uh discussions of what we have learned what's happened and what the lessons are uh from this um signature uh, event, um, Christine, your perspective uh, is uh, that in policy terms, something very significant has happened that gives the lie to the uh, insistence by the partisans. Uh, maybe that's not the right term, the, but by the people who uh, made the made the George Floyd case the the ultimate cause celebre in the United States. That uh, there there were real world consequences that give the lie to the phrase "Black Lives Matter." Yes, uh, it's all in the violent crime statistics. Uh, and you can look, start with Minneapolis, which, uh, as we all know, defunded its uh, police force and, you know, was was the center of, of a lot of the, the beginning of this activism that then spread. Uh, their homicide rate is is spiked precipitously. Um, they have they're they're having a, uh, it's not just homicide it's all violent crime uh, assault uh, whatnot this is true across the nation in all the major cities certainly particularly in areas where defund the police movements and act black lives matter activists were the most intensely uh protesting um and the end result the tragic end result is a lot more deaths of african americans in this country um, as a result of that violence and robberies and um yes menaces and assaults yeah because uh you know the disproportionate victims of these crimes are people of color and the memo has also gotten out there too where democrats are now having an internal conversation about how the predictable outgrowth of robbing police forces of resources and paring back their remit has produced more crime and that's not good 
not just because people are dying and there's a lot of property crime and businesses are forcing are being forced to close, but also the democratic project is in jeopardy here. Or rather, the progressive project is in jeopardy with people like Chesa uh, Boudin. Is that his name? Chesa Boudin. facing yes. a, a recall yeah. uh, proposal, and there was a, almost a successful primary challenge to this progressive prosecutor in Philadelphia. So there's some pushback there, but not nearly enough from voters to justify a revision of the of the progressive project on this count. I would also say uh, a year later, um, there's a, another effect, which is that we, we now all speak in this um, lunatic Orwellian language of anti-racism um, that uh, has, you know, framed our news cycle after news cycle every day, certainly further polarizing the American people um, in, in a way that I've never seen in my lifetime. Um, and the one thing I think that um, has worked uh, in the aftermath of the killing of, of George Floyd, um, the, the, the sort of the one good is the thing that was uh, demonized at the time, which is that the, the American justice system uh, uh, did what it was supposed to do in, in that Derek Chauvin was tried for and convicted of the murder of George Floyd. And with that, we will call a halt to today's proceedings and pick it up tomorrow. For Abe, Christina, Noah, I'm John Podhoretz. Keep the candle burning.